0: Coming up next, the booking reads, To Kill a Mockingbird. Everybody, welcome to the booking. My name is Nathan Alberson. And man, do I love killing blue jays. I'll stomp them. I'll stew them. I'll put them in a pot. I'll shoot them. I'll run them over. I'll torture them to death. Any way I can kill a blue jay, I'll do it. But mockingbirds, well, it's a sin to kill one of those. And that's a statement.
1: You would stew a blue jay? That sounds disgusting.
0: Anything to kill it, Jake. Okay. Kill all the blue jays you want. That's what Atticus Finch tells us.
1: Well, I don't blame him.
0: You know, I never liked to kill blue jays until I read this book. And then I realized that Atticus Finch, the moral bedrock of 20th century literature, said, kill all the blue jays you want. And I well, took blue that jays advice are seriously. Are blue jays mean?
1: Yeah. They're mean and aggressive. They come in and push other birds out of their nests. And they're just nasty birds. And they'll attack you. They're aggressive.
0: Do you think that that's a metaphor, Jake, for like racial relations or something?
1: I, I do, Nathan. I think that it's an extended metaphor that uh, this book takes up. Yeah, I think that's a metaphor.
0: Let's talk to Brandon. Hey. Hey. Hey, Brandon. Guess who I am? You're Nathan. Nathan Alverson, more like it. You're yeah, humble and obedient Nathan, host. Not Nathan. No. I not know
1: that about Blue Jays?
0: Do you can kill all the blue jays you want?
1: No, did you not know that they're... No, I actually... don't.
0: Here's my thing about birds, Jake. I hate them. <laughs> I'm, I've said this before on the bookending. I'll say it again. A friend of mine in school one time, we were studying birds and my friend leaned over to me and said, birds are stupid. And that was one of the top five best things that anyone's ever said to me. It rang so clear and so true in my mind. And it was hilarious and it was incisive and it was insightful and it was just like, this person has seen deeply into the nature of reality (laughs) birds are stupid and why do people care about birds what is so empty about people's lives that they go bird watching like how much do you have to hate your wife or your husband or your children to go bird watching it's like something brandon would do
2: um (laughs) to go bird watching to go bird watching you think i hate my family and my children i think you like to come up with hobbies that keep you away wow (laughs) nathan Glad you're giving such an accurate portrayal of who I
0: am. <laughs> no, Brandon loves his family. We how could, and how could he not? He's got a beautiful wife. He's got nine or ten kids, and he's a scholar who's a baller of reading. So of course they like him. Yeah. No, but seriously, folks, I really believe this. I'm 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 really not saying this for humor. Birds are so boring. Like, why would someone be interested in those disease-bearing little creatures? They're not interesting. They're not fun. They're not cool. There's They're nothing pretty.
1: And they make pretty sounds. I defend birds. I would never own a bird, but I'd be happy to have pretty birds around my house.
0: You heard it here first, folks. Jake Menzel, the pastor who's a master of reading, would be happy <laughs> to have pretty birds
1: <laughs> around his house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I tried. <laughs>
0: I don't like birds. I,
1: yeah.
2: You know sure.
0: what else I don't like is to kill a mockingbird. How long
2: have you guys been talking
0: about birds?
1: <laughs> What's wrong with you? Uh,
0: more like to Kill a Mocking Turd. Oh. No, I'm just kidding, folks. This According to book. this... Uh, what? Man, Are the new uh, listeners
1: gone yet? I know we like Thomas Everybody Mellon. Everybody that came here with some sense Thomas about Mellon. this book immediately turned off the recording because they want to hear you trash one of the greatest... Of well, literature.
2: Thomas Mallon is probably laughing right along with you, but let us I don't even know who he is. Who are you, Thomas Mallon, other than you yeah. get the New Yorker to publish an essay about you?
0: Uh, you're, you're joining us in medias rest. You've, you've, wr- you you've written t- 10 books of fiction. Brandon's been fighting a battle with Thomas Mallon since we got here. He doesn't even look like a writer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> What's he look like? Thomas Mallon He looks is a little some... bit like Chevy Chase. Well, look, you know-
0: Looks like a writer to me, I'm sorry to say. <laughs>
1: Some people, if they can't write, they gotta make their name by...
2: i right, I'm gonna tell you guys. When idiot he's...
1: hot take, cold takes on classic books. Here's his fiction. Not tell at all me... like any of us.
2: No. Tell me what you've read. Landfall, a novel. <laughs> <That's> so unfair. fair. <laughs> Finale, a novel. <laughs> number of books we've read of Thomas Mallon, zero. Watergate, a novel. Yeah, I love it. One of my favorites. Have you heard of these? Let's just start with, have you heard of these? Fellow Travelers, Bandbox. Oh, Bandbox is one of my favorite. I've actually got three copies. I give one away to friends. Two moons. Dewey defeats Truman. Dewey defeats... Henry Dewey. and Clara. Aurora Seven. Arts and Sciences. A seventy seduction.
0: Well, if this guy had a better well, let's pull out your strategy CD, for
1: Brandon and <laughs> <laughs> easy there, Jake.
0: <laughs> yeah, number <Remember> of <laughs> famous novels written by Brandon zero. <laughs> I'm not the one criticizing.
2: <laughs> to Kill Walking.
0: Look, bird. we've all been introduced, for, and if people are just tuning into the bookending for. The first time, there's some of this, and then we talk about books. And today we're talking about To Kill a Mockingbird, a a book that we all love, more than Mr. Thomas Mallon, apparently, who Brandon's been fighting a battle with over the internet. They haven't been, like, texting, but Brandon's been reading this article and grousing
2: about it since before we hit record. But he's got his PhD from Harvard University. That's not, that's not, that's not nothing. No, it's a PhD, in fact. Yeah, from Harvard. From Harvard. You know. (sighs) Yeah, he, yeah, he, you know, Chevy Chase, he looks like a rider too. He kind
0: of does. <laughs>
2: he kind of does. Yeah, you're right. Fat, balding guy.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> White male. Yeah. Can rock you, some oh. glasses.
0: Rock some glasses, yeah. Yeah.
2: Flannery O'Connor was just grumpy about it because he was about to die.
0: Well, we'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we talk about, oh, what's that sound? It's the guns going off, indicating a segment. If you're joining us for the first time, folks, which maybe you are, because to Kill a mockingbird is going to be an entry point for people, one would think to contextual texan is the part of the show where brandon who's from texas and is a scholar gives us some much-needed context on the work in this case that seminal work of american literature to kill a mockingbird by harper lee brandon yeah before you do that though you like to let out a
2: hail and yeah i did it yeah yeah okay let's dive into this guys let us go then you and i when the, where it's evening, but, and it's kind of spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. It's so that, probably not the best reference, given the COVID-19 scare that's happening, actually. <laughs> the, that's J.L. The love song of J.L. for proof rock. Ah, yes. Because like, I always like to get us back to modernism somehow.
0: Do I dare disturb the universe?
2: <sighs> um, Brennan dares. I dare. I dare to eat a peach. I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me.
0: I like that poem. I do too. I don't care what anybody says.
2: I love that poem. It's great. (laughs) I like T.S. Eliot. Okay. Um, But that's not what this is about. We're far from modernism. No.
0: One day, you know what my... I just came up with a theory, Jake. I think Brandon just loves T.S. Eliot. What? That's my theory. And I think if we give him a chance, if we'd give him a T.S. Eliot episode to get it out of his system, we'll never have have to hear about modernism again. Oh yeah, that's definitely... He doesn't actually... this whole time we've thought he wants to he- talk about modernism. That's not true. No, he just wants to talk He's, about T.S. He, he just, S. just wants Elliot. to talk about T.S. Eliot.
1: You're probably right. Let us review the new Cats movie.
0: I've been wanting an excuse to do that anyway. Great. Looking forward to it, guys.
1: <laughs> Should it's, we do that for our 200th?
0: It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> <no>. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's
0: such a middle finger to us. <laughs> Speaking of birds.
2: This is, this is a great episode so far, guys.
0: <laughs> yes. Let's put a... Brandon pause on that strict line oh, of conversation. Nathan. I get it. <laughs> Talk about to kill a mockingbird. Let's do
2: it. So this, hmm, how to start with this? Not, we're not going to start with autobiography, Nathan, because we're actually- <laughs> You're not going to tell us the story of Brandon Chastain <laughs> with your autobiography? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Weird. That's how I start every episode. My brain's a little fuzzy today. <laughs> All right, we're not going to start like we often do with biography because we're, we've already kind of dived in with, this is a controversial novel, and I was reading, before we started here, various articles. So there was one from Slate, and then there's one from The New Yorker, where it sets up the general discussion around this novel, that it's a very it's a popular novel. Mm. This is like, this belongs to the people, firmly. And This is a novel that everybody's heard of. Millions of copies have sold. My grandmother loved this novel. It's one of the first movies I watched with her based on a novel. Not one of the first movies I watched with her based on a novel. One of the first movies I watched that I remember based on a novel that I was fond Wait, of. I
0: still don't know. It's the first movie that you watched <laughs> no, it and matter. it was based
2: on a novel yes. or it's the first
0: movie you watched based on a novel. One of the first movies
2: I watched based on a novel that I knew was based on a novel. Oh, like okay. I realized, Oh, this was based on a novel okay. and one that I had read. Why do you know that? <laughs> I, I don't know, Nathan. Why would anyone care? <laughs> I don't know why they would care. <laughs> Brandon, I love you and I'm <laughs> interested in your life, but <laughs> let's just move on. Okay. Can we move on? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, because I'm trying to set up the background here, that this is an immensely popular book. Lots of people have read this book. Which means you can make a nice critical reputation for yourself by being an outlier. By either, well, by being an outlier, or one of the interesting facts, or one of the facts that this Slate article talks about is that even though this is an immensely popular book, very few critics have any sort of scholarship on it. Not a lot of people did ever do anything with this book. There's a lot of scholarship on Huckleberry Finn, there is even some scholarship on Gone with a Wind, which is inarguably a worse book mm-hmm. than To Kill a Mockingbird. And so the question he was asking is why do so few people want to stake their careers on Harper Lee? So he goes about trying to defend it a bit. He says that Atticus so he goes to this New Yorker article by Thomas Mallon, the guy we have already made fun of, probably unfairly. I mean he's got he's he's probably a fine novelist, Mr. Mallon. I'm sure you're listening right now. But Thomas Mallon talked about how Atticus Finch is this paper-cut-out saint. He's just this one-dimensional saint-like figure. And how this is a sentimental novel, and it's just cheap in what it's doing. And so this guy's trying to defend it and say, yeah, there are moments where it's a little maudlin. There are moments where it's a little sentimental. But really, you always have to keep in mind that this is from the perspective of a child. And an adult trying to give you what her feelings were as a child. And so that's always complicating the novel. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's a, f- a good understanding of what's happening in this book. But all that said, he, is re- he does kind of get to an interesting fact here that even though this is such a fundamental part of American letters, very few scholars take it seriously, at least seriously enough to do anything with it with their career. Do you think some of them are scared of it? Like- <laughs> I think some of them are scared of it. I think that it is a straightforward, simple story. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to Willa Cather. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Except Willa Cather was a, a problematic figure, and she, you know, she might have been a lesbian. She had all these things that were in her stories that made them a little more complicated than what was going on with *To Kill a Mockingbird*. And I, I don't even think it's quite as easy as saying that Atticus Finch is just a saint-like figure. I think that people who say that are really missing the point, mm-hmm. and that you can see that he's a fairly distant father. I mean, even so, one we I read it with my AP students this year. And one scene that we kept going back to, we had this debate about Atticus Finch. Is he the perfect father or is it complex? Is this complicated at all? I had a good batch of students this year and one of my better students kept going, went back to the scene where Atticus separates himself from his kids at church. Like, isn't that a weird scene where mm-hmm. he decides to sit apart from them? I'm like, yeah, that is weird. And so we started talking about it and she, and she rightly pointed out that really... Atticus is not as pristine a figure as we want to think he is. And I don't even think Scout, the older Scout thinks he is. Mm-mm. And people who think this story is about Atticus Finch, is, they're completely wrong. This is the story. This is a Bildungsroman about Jem. This is Jem's story. That so, was what
0: was profoundly apparent in rereading the novel is this really is Jem's story. And I hadn't remembered it that yeah. way.
2: Yep. I mean, even from the first line where it's Jem has broken his arm.
1: Yeah. And it's the story of how Jem, this is the story of how Jem broke his arm. Yeah. Well, We could start in any number of places.
2: And so every good story works with static versus dynamic characters, all these things that, I mean, that they teach for a reason in, in high school uh, English programs because they help you understand how stories work so that you can then get beyond that. But apparently a lot of critics just can't see anything here. And, I mean, it... Well, you know, it's one of those things when you
1: see some of the critics write or talk about this book, it's like they've missed the forest for the trees. There's this, the level of sophistication that I've feel like had to go into making this book as simple as it is, just blew my mind as I was reading it. And to, to attempt something like this, it just feels so far beyond.
0: Oh, you wouldn't want to. It's fool's yeah. errand. The fact that she pulled it off feels like a happy accident. And I'm sure Brandon right. will talk feels about like that. It like lightning
1: in a bottle. It's There's just
0: so like, many scenes that should be dumb. Scout runs up and de- disarms that crowd. That's a dumb scene in the outline. She's always
1: walking on the knife's edge of perspective and sentimentality and all kinds of things. And she never falls.
2: Yeah. And I think modern day critics, they want to have, so they'll, they'll be able to, they can do things with Truman Capote. They can do things with Flannery O'Connor, for example, because, and it's because there's just not enough diciness. There's not enough what they would consider depth. I mean, the, the moral of the story is pretty blatant. It's not like there's a lot to do with that. Mm -hmm. but that doesn't even the complexities are like at the end where is the, is the decision they make a good one to not, to not prosecute Bradley. And we got a whole class period out of that debating back and forth. How does, how is Harper Lee setting this up? And it was really fun. I mean, you get to see a lot of the basics, like with a good Shakespeare play of just how story crafting goes because she's showing, she's not telling you what to think instead, she's leaving it kind of ambiguous. You're, you kind of get the feeling that it's the right decision, but trying to parse out why it's the right decision is difficult to do. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. And so, there is a lot more depth to this story. I think that uh, one reason that it's not, well, I hate to say it, part of the reason it's not written about in English studies is because the more that I get in, the older I get, the less I think that there really needs to be such a thing as English studies. (laughs) I I think the professors should write books, but they should be more books like what CS Lewis was doing, like a history of the Renaissance, stuff like that. Who cares about the new thoughts that a professor has about the meaning of a book? I, I, I just don't, I don't quite, I don't know. That's, that's a whole other topic, but I think that a lot of scholarship, modern scholarship is just spent on the wrong sort of stuff. A good a good English program is more about the teaching and, and investing that teaching into students to get them to love books. And this is a great book to do that through. Mm-hmm. So if you're writing those sorts of books, then great. But I don't see s- scholars really doing that anymore, which maybe means that there's a pretty right place for the right sort of scholarship to come back in. But I wonder how much nobody's the, doing it.
0: the critical race theory people have descended on this and torn at it with their talons for the lack of representation for tom robinson well, and all that sort of thing
2: it's interesting because you would think they would have but i think that people look down on this book so much that they don't even take the time of day to do it
0: like if they do think that they're just like oh yeah of course this they're just like oh yeah exactly some dumb 60s uh
2: it's so popular that pious who cares? view of yeah racial yeah, yeah. huh it's re- it's so it's really got this
1: southern white virtue signaling yeah like
2: yeah. I mean, it participates in gradualism and all these things that they look down on, but they would, it's really them looking down on Harper Lee. She's not yeah. interesting enough for them to give the time of day.
0: It's pretty benign. Like there's, there's not a lot here to tear apart yeah. even from that point of view. It's like, well, you got Calpurnia and it's yeah, pretty solidly from Scout's point of view. I mean, how much can you really complain about? That's what I would think anyway, but that's what I always think when they yeah bring out the knives.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah, sorry to go on the digression there about the state of modern English academics, but I think that is partly true that, I don't know, you would kind of wish that you could go in and just turn over all the tables and run everybody out of the academy and just start over and get back to when real scholarship that was humbler could be done. But because there is a sort of humility to just writing the sorts of scholarship that Lewis wrote. You're just writing. Basically, he just wrote appreciations and histories of books. Mm -hmm. He wasn't trying to offer new interpretations. He was just offering his insights based on his analysis and synthesis of various texts and stuff. That's what scholars do. But now you have like these weird radical trying to politicize literature. And in that landscape, where it's a bunch of nonsense and hogwash anyways, books like this just get overlooked. And apparently it's not interesting either for the other attempts at this, which just get into the sort of pretension of the branches that... I also have issues with a more conservative scholarship, but they, they interestingly and not so interestingly partake in the whole cult of genius that we've seen in the past. So they have like their boys, they go to Homer and Flannery O'Connor and Chesterton and Lewis. And then again, Lee just gets overlooked. Hmm. So anyways, good for her. (laughs) Yeah. What a weird opening to context. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe there's a reason we start with bio. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Um, So who was Harper Lee? Well, her birthday was two days ago, April 28th. That's when she was born. So happy birthday, (laughs) Harper Lee. She was born Nell Harper Lee and she lived in Monroeville, Alabama. Some similarities. So one of the things that people make a lot out of with this novel is that quite a bit of the story takes elements of her childhood and puts them into the novel. Mm -hmm. Her father was a lawyer. He actually participated in a case where he defended father and son uh, African-Americans and lost the case, but he still took it because he was if, later in life, he would become a title lawyer. But at the time, that's what he was. He was a defender. And so he took the case and did his best to defend these men. And they, their reputation was affected some. So some of that actually came from her childhood. Um, Dill. Did
1: she learn to read from Blackstone's commentaries?
2: She didn't. That's not true. But she did get a love of re- uh, reading from her father. And actually, so one thing that was fun to read in Thomas Malin's uh, New Yorker essay was apparently her father bought a typewriter for her and her neighborhood friend, Truman Capote. So she grew up just down the street from Truman Capote. He bought them a typewriter and they would kind of take turns with the typewriter in writing stories. And so it was through that friendship, through an early love of reading, through her father being a man of letters because he was a lawyer that she eventually would become a writer but that wasn't the track she went through at first first she went to school to actually become a lawyer like her father eventually would drop out in 1948 so she could go to, go to new york and work for a while until finally she got the opportunity that most people um if you've ever seen the movie capote have you seen it yeah, yeah I, a long time ago. I, I haven't seen it but apparently um she's a pretty significant figure in that book a uh, movie mm mm-hmm. Um, in 1959, so she had been a struggling writer, um, tried to get some stories published, had some, but really wasn't garnering any fame. During those same years, Truman Capote had, and his fame had kind of skyrocketed. I think Breakfast at Tiffany's, was that before? Or was that after? I'm not as familiar with Truman Capote's history. Either way, he wrote things that made him famous. In fact, his first volume of stories, he wrote a story based on her. She was one of the characters in this book. But they remained friends. She went out to New York so that she could be with him and with some of his other friends. And so finally, one of this this set of friends decided to give her enough money so that she could just write for a year. And it was there, during this year that she got this set, the text uh, that of Go Set a Watchman finished. Uh, by the way, if I may interrupt,
0: yeah. uh, Breakfast and Activities, 1958. So, so right before. That would have been one of the things that yeah.
2: Capote and so, yeah, so right at around this time, Truman Capote's fame was skyrocketing. He decides to go out to Kansas to look into the series of murders or the murder that would become the basis of In Cold Blood. And he wanted Harper Lee to go with him. So she decides to go, but it's right around this time that she's also working on her, getting her manuscript published. And so she sends it to the publishing house, Lippincott, where she had the editor, Tay off. And this person, so there's the popular legend that Truman Capote actually wrote to kill a mockingbird. There's no credence to that. In fact, as time moves forward, as it does, as time has wanted mm-hmm. to do, If you guys didn't know that. Um, <laughs>
1: You're older than you've ever been.
2: Yeah, I know. I'm it's wild. Aware. Whoa. And now. Yeah. I'm going to be older and when, in a If couple you ever seconds.
1: listen to this again, you'll oh. be even older then.
2: Yeah. This is so crazy how time works. So, but the, so there was like a letter recently that came out between Capote and his aunt, where he says that he had seen, what do they call The type set or whatever of the ghost set of Watchmen. What do they call the the galley? galley, He had seen the galleys of ghost set of Watchmen and he thought they were great. He was known as a guy who'd like to talk. And so the fact that he never told anybody, even his close family, that he had had any sort of hand in editing and changing to Kill a Mockingbird to become what it is. It's pretty telling that he didn't. Yeah, It's a fun legend for people to toy with because she went to New York. She was friends with him. He was becoming successful at the time. He had just written to Breakfast at Tiffany's. They went out to Kansas together, but really there's no evidence to it. What there is evidence to is that and when Tay Hohoff went and wrote her history of Lippincott, the publishing house that got a, first got To Kill a Mockingbird, is that Ho'hoff had a significant hand in changing the book in fact it was very similar to um what's his face perkins. maxwell perkins yeah. in this and what you see over and over again and it really makes you wonder like you really wish that you could go back with shakespeare we talk all the, all the time about how that shakespeare's plays were living and they changed between mm-hmm. editions, and they changed between performances you wonder how much his his actors and um, how the collaborative people, they ended up becoming yeah, mm-hmm. yeah how much of that Shakespeare and how much of it is because Shakespeare like any good artist was willing to respond to criticism and change and oh, adapt my things.
1: actor went on this riff and it was awesome let me write that down so that we have it for the next performance
2: yeah and so it's fascinating to think about things like that and so like a lot of Tolstoy stuff his wife would read and criticize and so it's just it's it's fun to think to realize that all this art doesn't just create get usually created in a vacuum like this And um, the editor in late modernism (laughs) was very important. So Tay Hohoff writes a lot about how Harper Lee at first was very nervous about the text. She didn't think it was going to be any good. Got encouraged when Tay got her hands on it. She could tell that a lot of work needed to happen. But she also saw that there was a lot of literary merit to it as well. And so she took it and they started uh, sanding it down. They started breaking it apart, tearing off what was unnecessary fighting about it. She said sometimes I'd have hour-long conversations over the phone about this. I read some interviews and stuff about it. Uh, there's some very basic things you can find on Wikipedia, but also there's a lot of fun stuff if you just want to go and look up Ho Hohoff and just l- like read some of her history of Lippincott, some of her interviews. There's a lot of interesting things about the way that To Kill a Mockingbird came into existence. And you realize it was because this editor was willing to take what she saw as the embers of something that could become really big. A big fire, (laughs) and she was willing to stoke it and that it became what it is. There's a fun story that once she got a call because one of their friends just saw or heard Harper Lee had taken the manuscript and thrown it out the window into the snow. And so she had to call Harper Lee and say, You go get that now. And so Harper Lee went and got it. And so it wasn't ruined. But that was just the kind of writer Harper Lee was. She drove her head again and again against this story. The editor drove her head again and again. Against Harper Lee, sometimes Harper Lee would win, sometimes Tay would win, but eventually they got the manuscript that we know today, and so it's kind of a fun story. And that would be really the only thing that she would ever write, because there was actually recently a Times article, or either that, or a Times New York article. So what is the Times of the, the New, New York, York Times. Times? Thank you. <laughs> the Times of New York, or maybe it was the Times Literary. So that's what I'm thinking. Times Literary, but anyways, it was an article where this person convincingly argues that. And because of Tay Hohoff's letters, things like this, the ghost set of Watchmen that we have now, it's, the it's just the first draft. Yeah, There is no, it was not meant to be a number in a, in a trilogy. It was just the first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird. And so what we see now with her later life, because really there's not a whole lot to say about her, except for the Capote stuff, which we'll get to in a minute. After In Cold Blood, she there's a fascinating podcast uh, that I was listening to about where she herself in the 70s thought about writing her own true crime story. So she went and she um, looked into this pastor who had been murdering his family for insurance fraud. And so she got notes together and brought, thought about writing a book about that. And But that didn't really go anywhere. And the stress of um, public appearances, the stress of having an ad- admiring public, she was a very reclusive person eventually drove her to just go live with her sister and cut herself off, except for a few random public appearances in Monroeville libraries for the rest of her life. And that's her story, until she died and was taken advantage of in senility by publishing houses to get what they claimed was a new book, but was actually just the first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird, published as Go Set a Watchman. And even though it's fascinating to see a first draft... Which was the
1: original working title, if I'm...
2: Yeah, that's right. That's what she sent to Tehohoff. They're the ones who decided to change it to To Kill a Mockingbird. And so that's what I was saying. After Tehohoff's letters, all these things came out. It became very clear that that's the true story. And that the whole drama. I think I
1: even saw something where the publisher was forced into admission.
2: Yeah, I think. Yeah, right. Yeah.
1: Because there was maybe a lawsuit about it.
2: Yeah, the the whole, it was was nasty. And we all saw it unfolding like four or five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's the resolution of it. It kind of is quiet now, but the resolution of it has been recently that it's confirmed that was just the first draft. And while it's really fun to see a first draft of a novel, it's still a first draft. And the Atticus Finch that's in that novel that is racist and that is unfortunate in many of his beliefs, which actually is very much closer to who Harper Lee's father father was, was, that man became the Atticus Finch in later drafts, just like anybody who's ever written anything I mean, so I I like to write poetry. In some of my early drafts of poems, nothing like my later drafts of poems. It's just the way it works. And I would hate to think that if I ever get published and known, that my early drafts would one day be available for the published. Yeah, Uh, it's horrifying to think. Yeah, and it's sad that her senility, in her senility, she got taken advantage of like that.
1: Yeah, the only people that should ever ever read "Go Set a Watchman" are people who are doing scholarship on the process of of. Crafting a masterpiece of literature from first draft to final draft.
2: Or if it's published, like, so you can have, like, I have a big folio edition of um, The Wasteland Mm -hmm. that's like 400% longer than the original Wasteland. And a lot of it, it has like T.S. Eliot's red lines through his his, uh, whole sections of the poem, his notes saying like, this is just trash. And he's like really hard on himself, but it's really fun to see his process of weeding out what didn't need to be there and also his wife valerie would go through and suggest things as well and it's 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 that's fine like you said if if you're if it's for scholars looking at the scholarship of how these manuscripts change but the fact that this was presented to the public as a new novel was pretty horrible Mm -hmm. and the only reason they were able to do that is because a lot of first drafts look nothing like what they become
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, A good example of that is who we're about to read, well, I guess not about to, but Kazuo Ishiguro. I love him as a writer because he's very encouraging. But what he says he has to do is he goes and he shuts himself away for a while. He immerses himself in the story and then he writes a first draft that is inevitably awful and he is glad that nobody ever has to see. And he'll take it to his wife and she'll read it and she'll admit it's awful. But if there's a kernel of an idea there, they go and they start working on it. And he pushes against it and he starts molding it into a story. And he's a great writer. His prose is beautiful, but it still is proof that this sort of stuff takes work. It's process.
0: And I mean, my whole strategy with things, oftentimes, whether it's for like an email update or a script for a project that we're doing or something, it's like,
1: let's get the bad version. out.
0: Yeah. Of let's, way. that's, that's, that's what we always say. Like, let's yeah. write the bad draft. Like the only way that I'm getting anything on paper is if I tell myself, be bad. Be bad intentionally. And then that doesn't free me to be good. That, a lot, that frees me to, in fact, do exactly that. Be bad. And then once you have something bad, you can start changing it into something good. And it's a lot better than trying to go from blank to good. But yeah. like I'm intentionally like, oh, that's a stupid idea. I'm going to write it down. Oh, that's a bad line. I'm going to write it down.
2: Yeah, and it's really fascinating watching things. that I mean, we're going to just talk a lot about this novel deserving its place in the great American novel discussion. Mm-hmm. And it's really fascinating to realize that all these books come out of a process of editing and arguing. And so we've tried to make this point a lot to young writers. We've had young writers that talked to us before and we tried to encourage them that this is part of the process, but it really is editing, changing, realizing that you even works that are considered great came out of stuff that wasn't quite as great. I mean, I think that Kazuo Ishiguro is going to be in the conversation of the greatest 20th century writers, but his works all come out of a lot of effort and sweat.
1: I was listening to David Sedaris just talk about the process of writing an essay and rewriting and drafting an essay. And he said at one point, at one point he said he won't even show his work to an editor until he's been through about 15 or 20 drafts because he doesn't want to waste anyone's time. Use 15 to 20 drafts before it ever comes to somebody else's eyes for the first edit. And then it's a whole nother process from there. Mm-hmm. And that's for an essay. It's not for a novel,
0: which is not insane or overzealous or that's just, far from it. That's, no, just, that's just like, feels kind of normal the process. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It even in some ways it feels like boasting like, Oh, only 15 to 20 drafts. <laughs> yep.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: You must be really quick yep. and good. Yep. <laughs> honestly.
2: So one of the things that, before we move away from her biography, one of the things I did want to just briefly touch on was her relationship to Truman Capote. Yeah, it is interesting. It's interesting. So I found out that you can go to the New York Public Library and see like the 150 pages of notes she took while they were in Kansas, because she took the work that they were doing on, was it was at the Cotter murders. Was that what it, Something like, I have Have you ever read In Cold Blood? Yeah, it's wonderful. We'll have to do it. Or yeah. Breakfast
0: at Tiffany's Truman. is actually a great writer. Oh, yeah.
2: yeah. Um, so her father, when she decided to become a writer, when she dropped, so she dropped out of her law program one year before finishing. And he said, well, Monroeville, it's unlikely that Monroeville is going to produce two writers mm-hmm. because Truman Capote was already famous at that point. And so, but it did, you know, and Truman Capote has his place in literary history, but I think she's... If one of them is more likely to survive, it will be her. Absolutely. So.
0: Well, for one thing, her subject matter
2: is. uh... Well, Truman Capote, he's interesting because he's a fantastic writer, but very, very much like Mogam, he didn't write on the things that would last, except Mogam's even a little different than Capote because that whole question of the genius of the writer and stuff is interesting. You have the, I mean, right now we're having the resurgence of the true crime yeah, in cold blast, Bud
0: might at least remain as a touchstone yeah. because it created an entire genre. But yeah,
2: and what's really in, what's interesting and worth as pointing long as out is Audrey
1: Hepburn the, is iconic. Well, that's,
0: that's the problem, though, is the that,
1: name of Breakfast at Tiffany's will be remembered.
0: That novella ends with Holly Golightly running to Africa. The, the, everybody's going to remember the movie because the two leads get together at the end, but nobody's going to remember the novella because it's sad and existential and lame. Yeah, it's like, uh,
2: what's it called? The one that um, they just did I for imagine. Lighthouse.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know Pygmalion. Like, Pygmalion. Yeah, thinking. Bernard Shaw. Yeah, Bernard Shaw. Well, I agree with Bernard
2: Shaw on that one. In that I like Pygmalion.
0: I, I don't think that, um, what's-her-face, the flower girl needs to get with That's Henry Higgins.
2: Idea. Yeah. So... Anyway, so this is interesting because she was a part of... So Truman Capote went, and for anyone who doesn't know the story, he went to write kind of a journalistic novel on this murder. And he grew sympathies towards the murderers as he wrote it and was in the process, which she had a lot of issues with and took a lot of issues with. But it's the origin of now what we consider the true crime, where almost every podcast out there is on some sort of true crime. Mm Think Serial yeah that truman capote kind of started that and he was an early founder of that in of that genre and harper lee had her hand in it with the uh she would take notes and she would um very detailed notes i've heard it's pretty fascinating and then she tried to do that same process later with the uh novel she wanted to write of her that true crime story but ended up falling through the cracks and she really didn't write anything else except a few essays here and there later in life. She's a one-hit wonder, but not because she had anything else that she ever wrote. It's because she only wrote one masterpiece.
0: Well, as some article I was reading said, uh, most novelists are zero-hit wonders, so to call her a one-hit wonder is to say less than nothing.
2: Yeah, and it's also to say that she only wrote one thing, right? (laughs) and it was a wonder, which is even less common, right? right? Usually you see the first novel, which maybe shows some promise and then fi- like even Salman Rushdie with, you know, he had grimace first and then finally he had. Or you'll uh, have somebody like you know, uh, Norman
0: Mailer hit big with Naked and the Dead and then yeah. spend the rest of his life kind of trying to re that, to live up to, up to that. Yeah. yeah. Not, that so, I've, not that I'm a huge Norman Mailer head.
2: Yeah. And so she, didn't, like I said, she didn't like the limelight. She didn't like the publicity that came with writing. She didn't like any of that. And so she didn't do it anymore. <laughs> um, she decided to live her life quietly. And Didn't her and
0: Truman Capote kind of fall out of- They had a fall out, yeah. As he became more of an effete kind of yeah, television she, personality. She did
2: not like his lifestyle and so decided to leave New York when it became incompatible with who she wanted to be and went didn't live, live with her sister who had become a lawyer.
0: But she liked to have a sip of the old alcohol, right? I guess. Is that right? One of the things I read said one of the reasons she didn't like public appearances is because people tended not to want to see her drinking, and (laughs) she wanted to be drinking.
2: Oh, well, that might be true. One of the things I didn't mention is that she was very much an inspiration for Scout Mm -hmm. because she grew up as a tomboy. She wanted to play football. She was always picking on Truman Capote, who was a scrawny and... She smoked a pipe when she was older. She was kind of rough around the edges. Did she ever have any relationships or even do people speculate about relationships? That's weird. I didn't really read a lot about people speculating about any relationships. She seemed to be fairly... No husband, children, lovers, anything? No celibate. So,
0: huh? yeah. I'm surprised somebody hasn't made some kind of crazy something with that. You would... Yeah. Yeah. I'm not trying to pick holes in your research. I'm asking because I... Looked it up, but I didn't really see anything either.
2: No, and I tried to find something about that, but things, people were very quiet about it. It's strange. I mean, it was like her nieces
0: or something that were after that were she was that were the bad guys in the Götter Watchman brouhaha, right? I know it was family members of some type.
2: I don't know. Well, here's didn't Harper Lee reveal she was gay and To Kill a Mockingbird? Oh, good. Okay, she obviously wanted her sexuality hidden from the public. Um, well, one fact I also forgot to mention was that they decided to go with Harper Lee as her pen name because they thought the people would call her Nellie because they're N E L L E and she didn't want to be known as Nellie.
0: That's fair. Yeah. Fear. I definitely would almost definitely call her Nellie if
2: that her name. And she has skewed 1950s femininity, yeah, uh, like the drunk, the drinking and the tomboyishness. But really, things, even this article that's trying to claim she was, is saying there's really no evidence to it. So, The public will never know is how it ends. Isn't that fun? That is fun. Yeah. So it's a real mystery until someone finally publishes some long lost letter, I'm guessing.
0: I mean, even with people like Salinger or Pynchon or some of those famous recluses, we kind of know they're they're jilted lovers and everything, right?
2: Yeah, except, I mean, this is similar to Flannery O'Connor in the sense that Flannery O'Connor never had any lovers as far as we know. She had a guy she was interested in, but never went anywhere. So similar... In that sense, which you have the two Southern writers there, the two greats Mm -hmm. and two very different styles. Mm -hmm. So, so that is her biography. Well, I guess we should talk a little bit about the movie. In 1962, she had a hand in adapting the movie. She herself thought it was one of the best movie adaptations ever done. And stayed
0: friends with Gregory Peck her whole life, which I don't understand because I just watched the movie and I thought it completely missed the point of
2: the book. Yeah, she was great friends with Gregory Peck. He named one of his children after her. Uh, Later in life, his wife would be helpful to her as well. So, yeah, there was just a very close friendship between her and the Peck family coming out of that. So Good for them. Good for them. I don't necessarily advise watching the movie. It's fine for what it is, but... I think we're going to do a sanity at the movies on it, but
0: my hot take on the movie is that it completely misses the point in a way that's... Really brings out everything that, everything that has the potential to be stupid, but that she manages to sidestep in that story. Like the scene where Scout runs up and shames Mr. Cunningham. Like that scene has the potential to be so stupid, but it works in the novel because she's a genius and she just makes it work somehow. I don't even know how, but in the, mov- she does. In the movie, it's just like, really, this little girl's going to talk down a lynch mob? That's cute.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Thanks, movie. Well, they make it sentimental and the book manages not to No. this might seem like a, well, it's not a really strange segue. This book is important both for its position as an American novel, but also for participating. I mean, right when it was published in 1960 was like the beginning of the civil rights movement. And so a lot of the, conversation around this book so right as soon as it was published it got a lot of publicity it was like a reader's digest choice oprah winfrey years later would choose it for her list too but anyways um one pulitzer prize thing big 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 book and one of the reasons one of the reasons it was propelled to the national forefront like that was because civil rights had been going on for a while but it really escalated and intensified in 1960 so, for example, 1954, I've got a timeline of the civil rights activism right here in front of me. Mm. Uh, the Supreme Court declares school segregation unconstitutional in Brown versus Board of Education. 1955, you had Rosa Parks. 1960, you had the four black college students who began the sit ins at the lunch counter at Greensboro, North Carolina. Then the Freedom Rides riot began in 1961. 1962, Kennedy sends federal troops to the University of Mississippi. And so things are really escalating towards 63 when you have Martin Luther King Jr. give his I Have a Dream speech. And so it was like the time was right for her to not take advantage of the moment because that's not what she was doing. Um, things were percolating under the surface, and they really intensified right when her book happened to be published. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of a right, thing, right book at the right time sort of situation situation. Let's see, Invisible Man, I don't want to get the date wrong, but it was around the same time too, by Ralph Ellison. Have you read that one? No. It's great. We should, have it. we should do that one one day. Yeah, 1952 was when you had Invisible Man. And so, Ralph Ellison in 1952, he wrote Invisible Man, very influential book. It was inspired by a lot of the work that had been done in the 20s and 30s, and a kind of parallel movement to modernism, called the Harlem Renaissance. And if people don't know about the Harlem Renaissance, you should go and learn about it. It's a really fascinating topic of um, American history. And unfortunately, it really does get short shrifted, I think. So we were talking earlier when I got on my weird tangent about academics. Mm -hmm. And I also mentioned conservative academics, where there's kind of a blind... So there's all about the Western tradition and the Western canon that we talk about, right? One of the things that gets overlooked is the black writers in America, for some reason. Like, I, I was educated that way. I went to a small classical school. I also had, like, the Veritas Press sort of stuff in middle school, and I had that education. I i had heard about Flannery O'Connor. I had heard about the other great... I had heard about the other great American writers, but one thing I had never heard of until later in life was Langston Hughes, Claude McKay, Ralph Ellison. Write with Native Son in 1940. where it's a very influential book. And so this whole... Kind of subculture to American letters, which is really amazing. It's really good stuff. So, for example, this poem was written in 1922, the same year that The Wasteland was written. This is by Claude McKay called The Lynching. And it's a sonnet. His spirit as smoke ascended to high heaven. His father, by the cruelest way of pain, had bidden him to his bosom once again. The awful sin remained still unforgiven. All night, a bright and solitary star, perchance the one that ever guided him, yet gave him up at last to fate's wild whim, hung pitifully o'er the swinging char. Day dawned, and soon the mixed crowds came to view the ghastly body swinging in the sun. The women thronged to look, but never a one showed sorrow in her eyes of steely blue, and little lads, lynchers that were to be, danced round the dreadful thing in fiendish glee. So, that's called The Lynching, and that's by Claude McKay, 22, and so, I mean, it's about a black man lynched in a tree and the white people paying no attention to it so but there's this whole wonderful world of poetry that was happening around the same time with um guys like claude mckay langston hughes ralph ellison um zora neale hurston was another major writer in the same around the same time in the 20s she wrote sweat which would become a very influential short story and so they were also and the, the, all these writers were in new york writing in harlem and so that's where you got the term harlem renaissance and in tangent with them you had music and they were expressing themselves through jazz especially and so it was just this lively point in american history where african americans were finding ways to express themselves and what's fascinating about claude mckay is that he he did it through formal poetry And then Langston Hughes did it more through informal poetry. He's more like Walt Whitman. His stuff is less um, formally constrained, but more free verse. And so, but first, I I think they're both really great poets. And so um, I guess I just wanted to make this aside to show people that there is a whole world of this that is worth going out and exploring and reading. And I would highly encourage our listeners to do that. Langston Hughes is worth reading. Claude McKay, worth reading. I think that Native Son is worth knowing about and reading. And so is The Invisible Man, or not The Invisible Man, that's H.G. Wells. Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, worth reading. Maybe one day we'll do it, or Juneteenth on the bookening. Mm-hmm. But this, the Harlem Renaissance, that spirit, that stuff that was happening in New York. And so you also had W.B. Du Bois, who was a little bit before that, but still a part of the movement, kind of one of the forefathers of it. And so. Um, all that was going on that would eventually lead to not an awakening, but an emboldening that would lead to the civil rights movement. And so, like I said, all this stuff was happening 20s, 30s, 40s, leading right up to the 50s, late 50s, when she would publish her book in the 60s. And so the time was right. And she was able to participate in a very big cultural conversation that was happening that was bigger than just her Novel, but her novel was influential in that debate and um, discussion. So, anyways, I wanted to point that out. And I didn't know when else we might ever get a chance to talk about the Harlem Renaissance. So, have we, I don't know, have we ever even been able to bring it up before?
0: No, I don't think so. Brandon's so, a big Langston
2: Hughes fan. I do. I and like Langston Hughes quite a bit. So, people, so he, so you should. He's great. Yeah. So, for our listeners, I think that is an element of literary history that is, 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 so the whole, Back, the whole push back against uh, multiculturalism, against liberalism and academics, I think often also leads us to be blind to things that aren't necessarily good to be blind against or blind to. Harlem Renaissance is one of those things. Writers like Kazuo Ishiguro, I think a lot of people might just overlook him because they think, well, he's just, people are just supporting him because he's a minority minority writer. No, actually, Kazuo Ishiguro is a genius. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason that <laughs> In addition to being a minority. Yeah, so sometimes the Nobel Prize gets it right. There really is stuff that's bigger than just the kind of narrow pathway of the Western canon that is worth looking into and exploring. I wanted to, people shouldn't start, maybe I guess we're going to, maybe I'm going to start getting hate mail that I'm a bloody liberal, but... (laughs)
0: Good. Bring if, it. If, if the booking could get one letter from one person saying that we were bloody liberals before <laughs> <laughs> the end,
2: that
0: would, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but yeah, people should go out. You can. So the Poetry Foundation is a great resource. Go and look up Langston Hughes, Claude McKay. Read their stories. Go read Sweat by Zora Neale Hurston. Buy Invisible Man. Read it. I think that you will find that. There, unless you've been introduced to these things, I'm suspecting a lot of our readers had not haven't. I know with the homeschool curriculums I grew up with, I was never introduced to them. It's no fault of anyone except the people who wrote the curriculum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe these were names you would have heard, but you would have never been encouraged to go and read them, right? Because they would have been. And this is where you know. I like to think that every theory thing, so like there's some, whether we like it or not, like post-colonial theory has some truth to it, right? What the colonialists did in some of those colonial countries, like when you read Rushdie and some of the guys like that, what the colonialists did wasn't always great. They weren't always the nicest guys. Personally, I love malaria-covered blankets
0: myself. And so
2: even we, so, but there's a sort of weird american western blindness to this sort of stuff where we think that any criticism has to just be bad and so even marxism has elements of truth to it like guess what people who just pursue wealth like capitalists tend to take advantage of the poor and tend to take advantage of their workers that's something that the bible actually talks about right is that scandalous (laughs) But that doesn't mean that Marxism is good. It just means that a lot of these things take one kernel of truth and then corrupt it so severely that they, the whole engine is broken. All that to say, just because multiculturalism, these things push to also diversify and read, doesn't mean that then People divers- in
1: positions of wealth and power tend to abuse their wealth and power. Yeah. Instead of disciplining people for the abuse of their wealth and power, let's get rid of wealth yeah. and create an artificial construct of power.
2: Right. Thank you. Pretend like we can get rid of power. <laughs> get the train back on the rails of not people thinking I'm a Marxist. <laughs> My point being that just because multiculturalism says go and read people who aren't white doesn't mean that you shouldn't. Then you should, your, the, your reaction should be, well, I'm only going to read white people. Right? No. Multiculturalism is wrong.
1: I bet you just read good people.
2: You should just read good people. That's
0: right. Anyways. We can all think of authors who have tried to yeah. be kind of jammed into the canon because of Yeah, or books that things. we've yeah.
1: been forced to read or had, had to read or took up because, you know, people have just asserted that it's...
2: Yeah, I have a story that maybe one day I'll tell about the biggest fight I ever had with a professor that led to a paper where I pretty much attacked him because he made me read this book that I hated. Mm-hmm. And it was a Native American book. And it was like, you know, you need to just read it because this will challenge you. And I'm like, well, that's garbage. I don't want to read it. And guess what? We read it and it was garbage, but. Why should I listen to you? You're Chinese. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's what she said. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> no, he was an old white man. <laughs> okay, <good. laughs> And multiculturalism is awful and the liberal agenda behind it's awful and the thoughts behind it are, have, lead to nowhere good. But well, the we... thought that you shouldn't be afraid of the foreigner <laughs> That's not such a bad thought. <laughs> <laughs> Already pointed out, we talked a little bit about the critical heritage. I think that you actually want to bring some of that up yourself in our discussion, so mm-hmm. I'll save some of that for you. Uh, we did her bio. We talked a bit about Capote. We talked a bit about the controversy surrounding the book, whether or not Go Set a Watchman, its relationship, all that, and we also talked about the 60s and the Harlem Renaissance. And there we go. That's all I wanted to do.
0: Well, I think I don't know if this is the right time to make this point, but I think maybe some of the disinterest in this novel, some of the, or the uninterest, I should say, some of, the, some of the backlash against this book is the fact that that sort of gentle strain of 60s optimism didn't really work out very well in a lot of people's minds. I think in most people's minds. You know, Martin Luther King died. Kennedy was killed. Like, Bobby Kennedy died. The liberal machine failed. And so this feels like an artifact. All right, guys, I'm going to... Speaking of rights, it's the right of every one of our patrons who gives at least $10 to get a donor shout out. And let's do it. I'm just going to read them real fast and you guys can both shout them out. We'll keep it simple today. Sound good? Yep. All right. Robert and Ron of the Lovebirds Robert and Ron and the Lovebirds The Artful Anthony Dodgers the Anthony Little Dodgers. Anthony Cigar Store Little Anthony Cigar Store
1: Immortal Chelsea E the Immortal
0: Chelsea E Jimmy and Little Annie Oakley Lily of the Valley And Ernest of the Lovebirds The Keith Master David's Mighty Men Trucking John and Jill Little Baby Max Jay and Katie Over Cold and Love Cheese And also C.S. Lewis, Including Tilly We Have Faces Fairy Princess of Wonder And Happy His Mother Beth The Consul Prime Adam Jeremy the Darker The Lord of Death, Nathan, Not Me Maya Maya due to the ladies of Justice, Danny DJ Sammy G, Benny and Danny <laughs> Tiberius, Eric and Catherine, Priyano, Briggs, Cat and Lady Axe, Lavender's <laughs> Green, Dilla Dilla, Lavender's Blue, Lavender's Green, Dilla, I love you too. Noah no to 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 no no Constrictor, Mary Cheap, the Fahrenheit, Frank, <laughs> <program laughs> Maiden, yeah. Chloe, expect packed I mean, attack Catherine's Catherine McNack for laying down the speck and then he was cold and hates life, liver due to pursuit of cheese, which is due to for the Texas Ranger, Rachel, Rachel, Rachel,
1: Rachel.
0: Leopard taking Thomas Midnight Ninja Ellen Queen get it. Return of the to Die Jay, Bracken Rune, Timothy, the Rider at Dawn, Eric and Kate, the Cam Champ Kings, we're warm and love bees, bad, 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 baby, sweet Jamie Sunshine, the keeper of eternal darkness, Laura, the keeper of eternal Light, Cody Wilkody, Jacqueline Library, the Librarian, John Bobadilla Bomb Dick, Captain Daniel, his mate. And introducing Introducing to do 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 our new friend. Our new friend.
1: Should
0: we just have that be his name? Our new friend.
2: Mario, apparently. I don't know what is his name, Nathan.
0: We'll call him Saxophone Alex. Guy, Saxophone Alex, welcome to the donor shout-out family. Yeah, welcome. Apparently, Jake and Brandon aren't
1: that excited to have you.
2: Hey,
1: I said hey. Yeah, welcome.
2: It took a while though, Jake. You're my second favorite saxophone player. Who's second first? only to saxophone, Joe. Bill Clinton. <laughs> yeah, it goes Bill Clinton, Kenny G.
0: Welcome to the family, saxophone Alex. And Brennan. say the last line of the podcast before we cut to music. Go set a Watchman somewhere. We'll be back. Go to patreon.com forward slash the booking to support the show. Thank you for your support. Get us up to the next tier and we will read some King Arthur. Which Brandon just pointed out we could read an Ishiguro novel about King Arthur. We're going to make this into an Ishiguro podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I've been told by two people that I trust, namely Brandon and Jake, that uh, whatchamacallit? Never Let Me Go. Never Let Me Go is quite good. And Jake said, Nathan, you in particular would like this. So I'm curious to find out why he thinks that is. I'm guessing because it has something that's kind of creepy or deliciously paranoid or... Tasty. Tasty or... Something. Fantastical or... Something. Something kind of along f- those it's lines. It's
2: good. It's very... It's... Uh, it's Yeah. You'll, you'll like it. I, over a spring break, I read his Nocturnes, his short story collection. Mm-hmm. It's really good. I have not laughed as hard as I laughed in one of those stories in a long time. Wow. Let's just say it had to do with a man being tricked into pretending he was a dog and getting caught by the guy's wife when she walks in on him.
0: (laughs) That sounds (laughs) awesome. I don't think we
2: can find a better note to end the podcast on than
0: that. See you next week, folks.